can now, in a sense, interrogate your company da data and information if you have a model that's either access it through a vector search or it's a fine-tuned model, whichever way you want to slice and dice it. But you can now essentially interrogate your company. But if you try to create something new, then you're going to have to spend time with half-baked thoughts that you refine in an interaction with ChatGPT. Like, I'll spend hour, couple of hours with a vague idea of an outcome that I want to see, and then I'll just go back and forth in a conversation with ChatGPT to get eventually get to the outcome that I want. Paradoxically, and the irony of it all, is that we, we can, with proper use of AI and machine learning tools, fundamentally, we can actually become more human through the use of it. Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast, and today I'm speaking with Sam Woods. Who is Sam Woods, you might ask? He's a consultant, he's a prompt engineer, that's certainly one of his many skills, and I think first and foremost, he is someone with a lot of hands-on experience using ChatGPT and other language models for other tasks. I've been thinking about how I want to approach the question of machine learning in the podcast. Of course, I've written many articles on the more technical side of it, but how I wanted to start was really building an intuition, or as Sam later says, an instinct, around how to use ChatGPT as a tool, how to use language models, and what it's like as a product, before diving in to the technicals or the more kind of theoretical arguments, really getting an understanding of the product itself. And that's exactly what Sam does. And I think that he's quite good at it. He's taught me things even just in this episode that I now find useful. So I hope that certainly all of you can get that. And we certainly explore the more philosophical and the more speculative end uh, of those questions as well. Where language models will head into the future. What kind of societal ramifications will that have? How to live a good life in a kind of post-LLM world? All of that uh, will be in our conversation. And if you like the show, number one thing you can do to help us out is to let a friend know, either in person or online. That doesn't just help us, but hopefully helps your friend find something interesting and something informative to listen to. Without further ado, here's Sam Woods. So I think a great place to start this off. You had an amazing piece in uh, American Mind, by the way, which is where I caught your attention. But I think a very good uh, way to start this off is what is one thing that people assume is true about uh, machine learning or about AI that is just entirely, you know, just the opposite of the truth? <laughs> well, it depends on who you're, who you're talking about. Most people that I interact with daily, weekly, whatever... They're holding on to this idea that, well, it can't be creative mm. or, or it can't reason. It can't do X, Y, Z, whatever, whatever human quality or what, whatever we associate as a human quality. And that becomes, um, it's like kind of a coping mechanism in a sense. And so they say, oh, I can't be creative. And yet here I am. And here, here are hundreds and thousands of other people using AI daily or as what well, we refer to as AI, even though you and I both know that it's not quite AI, but whatever. So there are tons of people using it, these tools in ways that is fundamentally creative. And often these tools on their own 
behave in a way that is creative, where if, if we didn't know that machine learning tool or a large language model or something else made it, we would assume that a human made it because it looks and feels creative. Right. What's, what's particularly interesting to me is I think it casts a shadow of what people assume are kind of essentially human Mm. And maybe maybe should make people change their mind about that, right? So so something that I think is still in the kind of struggling phases in the in the early phases is, I mean, you mentioned reason earlier. This kind of chain of thought, this kind of explanation, these kind of like proofs. Certainly, getting things right seems to be something that uh, machine learning struggles with, that language models struggle with. Whereas, yeah, like like you said, the, this kind of like idea generation, right? Give me a list of things to do, inspire me, right? Uh, I think like the mid journey, the mid journey command on on their Discord was inspire at some point, right? Right. Yeah. Um, that kind of thing seems like something that current technology is very capable of. On the other hand, so and even more. But go ahead. So you can go on. You can go on. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, it's one thing to ask for ideas, and it's one thing to bring. Um, ideation to the table like for example one of the fun things that i've done is uh one of the fun things i do every week actually just for the heck of it is that i have i ask and i I do this with chat gpt but um mostly at this point i use api straight into gpt4 so what but what i'm saying is applicable if you want to use the web interface uh either way but one thing that i do often is that i'll take an unrelated concept or model or whatever you want to call it, analogy or something else from anywhere else, and I apply it to text, to written text. So for example, I will have ChatGPT write me a piece of text in the manner and style of, let's say, uh, fractals. So oh, interesting. Yeah, and, and ChatGPT at this point up to now will always tell me, that's it, before it even answers the, the prompt or gives me some, I'll put back, it'll always tell me, that's an interesting concept. Like usually you don't apply Julia sets, for example, to writing, um, but I'm going to do it anyway. And then it writes me whatever topic I'm asking for. And the text, it's not visually organized as a fractal. It's not what I'm talking about, but instead with some direction, you can have it explore an emotion or a topic in a fractal manner so that it writes it out each sentence and sentence structure and the, the, the depth of exploration as if, it is writing a fractal. So up until now, what I'm doing is human-directed creativity, right? I bring the idea to ChatGPT and tell it to do something for me uh, that sounds weird and bizarre and is just left field and uh, it doesn't make any sense initially. But what I've realized and found is that especially with the, with the code interpreter mode that exists for some plus users in alpha right now in a way, you can literally give it anything and then ask the code interpreter, which is just ChatGPT with the code interpreter as a mode on it, and ask it to explain something to you and to uncover what's there but is missed at first glance. And so you can ask ChatGPT to be creative without directing it specifically how to be creative. And you ask things like, what is here that most people would miss? Or what is here that I don't see? What's in this file or in this text or in this set of data that most people wouldn't realize at first glance? What else can we, what other models can we apply to this? What other types of either statistical analysis all the way down to sentiment analysis can we apply to this body of data? 
And I'm doing this daily at this point because it's just fun to explore. And the code interpreter mode of ChatGPT is phenomenal at coming up with connections, juxtapositions, and all kinds of application of different models and frameworks from unrelated fields and then apply it to whatever data file I gave it. And with minimal direction for me, all I asked for are analyses and ways of looking at this data in a way that is unique, different, uncommon, and so on. And so obviously we know that under the hood, ChatGPT with the code interpreter is not being creative as in the way that a human is or the way we think of a human being creative, but the output is nonetheless the same, is displaying creativity or what looks like creativity and what very much feels like creativity is displaying it to me and to others who are doing the same thing, which makes all of it very interesting as to where is cognition, where is co creativity, where does that reside? Where does it happen? How does it happen, right? So anyway, that's a long rambling point to say that I think that it's people hold on to this idea that large language models or even machine learning models can't be creative, can't display human or aspects of our humanity that we think is protected just because we are humans and the computer is not, but it can display at least the behavior of it. Right, right. So, so something that's very interesting, uh, I think I heard you say this on a different podcast, your job won't be replaced by GPT, but it will be replaced by someone who uses GPT. Right. Yeah, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I think that's exactly right. Like, yeah. the, there's still this kind of process of uh, ingenuity, I think, you know, like you said, the this, uh, the this exploration of parallels, you know, this is something that was theorized was possible from yeah. early machine learning, right? The whole idea of word vectors, the difference between uh, king and queen is very similar to the difference between men and women. Right. Uh, and, you know, you, you can kind of express that mathematically and you can do the same with fractals. That, that's something that's that's very interesting, right? That, that's something that's certainly kind of idea. This is something that is like a very creative idea intrinsically. But you see now, like, like what's happened is that, you know, if you were if you were just working by yourself, you were saying, okay, I'm gonna test, you know, I'm gonna try writing something out in the style of a fractal. Yeah. Uh, to, to even like start that draft, it'd take you probably a fair amount of time. But with some, something like ChatGPT, with an LLM or with the with the API version, you know, it's much faster. Um, yeah. I do think like people are too people are too pessimistic on this. I, I do think that on one hand, you know, there, there's some subset of skills that gets subsumed, but there's another subset of skills. You know, there, there's another subset of thinking that maybe has been underrated so far that that becomes kind of um, th that becomes increasingly valued. Um, yeah. Because specifically because this technology exists. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. It's um, and, you know, I think the incentive is to be an AI doomer, and that's always the <laughs> yeah. the negative is always the in, the most incentivized, at least in this age of social media, right? Like that's the thing that gets prioritized and elevated, and, and engagement goes up, etc. So the incentive is to be an AI doomer, not just for clickbait, but also because that's a that's the fastest path to assuming control and retaining power over what's happening mm. to AI, right? So it pays not just in, in attention, but it also pays dividends in terms of who gets to control it at the end of the day. So that's where the incentive is. The incentive, unfortunately, is not in the positive use cases or even what it can be in the hands of every man, woman, and child with their own personal AI of some kind. I think we'll get there. I hope we get there sooner rather than later. I hope we get there faster than the AI doomers can uh, 
retain and keep control and, and wield it in whichever way they are looking to wield it. But it's long term, the incentive is, is always leaning toward the positive. It's always a question of how much damage that the doomers will make before that happens. But it's, I think this, who said this? Um, someone smart said what I'm about to say, which I'm going to butcher in a paraphrase that uh, I apologize. But someone said that the value always accumulates somewhere. So where in terms of value of, let's say, work or value of a business that exists to serve customers or even just the value of whatever, human interaction, the value doesn't go away you know, where the value accumulates. The value will go somewhere. And I think most of us don't know where the value is going to accumulate for a business, like there are, there are businesses that are out of business right now, but they don't know it yet. Because <laughs> right. you know, machine learning tools and all these AI things, it can essentially do what they do with fewer people or no people and cheaper, faster and better. And so I think the next couple of years, what we'll see is just a lot of zombie companies that are really dead already, they, but they don't know it, we're just gonna see them collapse. And, but the value doesn't go away. It doesn't disappear. It's like energy. It just transforms and turns into something else. But one area that I've seen the value starting to accumulate is when I, so the work that I do often involves uh, training and working with C-suite people and management people uh, where I show them different ways they can leverage uh, some kind of large language model, either the API or their own vector uh, search type setup or even a fine-tuned model on let's say their company information or their company data. And there's only so many times, let's say you have um, chat looking interface that lets you talk to your company data uh, to, you know, to make it simple. There's, there are only so many questions you can ask and only so many pieces of information you can extract from your own data that you know to ask for. And so mm -hmm. the first block happens when people go, well, how do I, how do I prompt my company information and data in a way that it gives me answers that I haven't thought about or don't know about, or it gives me answers or uh, explanations, or it make, it's making connections in a way that I wouldn't be able to figure it out on my own, or even with a team, because humans, we only know so much, can only keep so much in our minds at any given time. And so the first block is, well, now that I have all the obvious types of information and data available to me to ask for in a prompt, now what do I do? And so the first uh, block is that. How do I ask for the things that I don't know to ask for? Right. How do I get the unknown unknowns? Exactly. But yeah, let's yeah. say you figure that out. Let's say, you, and a lot of people are, and, and whether through my help or through, through some other people's help or just your own experimentation, you can, you can get to that point where you uncover those things. But let's say you do. So the value at one point was the ability to uncover the unknown unknowns. And let's say you, you break that... Uh, break into that and you're able to uncover the unknown unknowns now what right so the question is, is always a one step further you can go and then at some point one way or another the the fundamental question is going to boil down to especially if you're in a company if the goal of your company is to sell your widget and to figure out better ways of selling it and, be, and better performing widgets then at some point your question is going to revolve around that and if you're a public company then it's about shareholder value etc 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 so at some point your set of questions will always come back to what the whole purpose is of your company and that's where i think eventually a lot of value will go which is purpose of a company and i'm not talking in a 
you know, self-help guru kind of way of purpose. I'm not <laughs> talking about in the, in the, in the way that, um, what's his name? Simon Sinek, Sinek, something. Yeah, Simon Sinek. What? Yeah. yeah, Simon Sinek. Um, no offense to him. I'm sure he's a lovely person, but his book on why is bullshit because it's just self-help for companies and it's not real and it's not true. So when I'm saying about the purpose, I'm not talking about the, the, the silly question of why. And people don't buy the why, by the way. Data shows us that people don't buy the why, no matter what, how many times the book repeats that, uh, that idea. So it goes beyond the why you exist, and it's more about the purpose of the company. And I think we're going to get to the point where when everything and anything is possible, you're going to have to make an active choice as to what kind of possibilities you therefore want to exist at your hands and by your hands. And so you're going to quickly have to figure out as a company, not quickly necessarily, but in the next few years, because when competitors can do the same blue widget as you and they can make it as good as yours and there's, you can't compete anymore on the type of blue widget that exists and like commoditization has happened at hyperspeed, where, where does value go? It goes not necessarily into something that gives you an unfair advantage and it goes more so into the purpose of your company as to why you're making those blue widgets and what your what the point of the blue widgets are so it's it i think the line will keep on moving but if you can get to the unknown unknowns that's a good first step but it's not going to end there because eventually you're going to have to make the choice as to even though we can make any blue widget of any kind for anyone anywhere uh, cheaper faster better and we can just keep on iterating on blue widgets now what and so what? Because your competitors can do it the same way, especially with AI and machine learning. Yeah, I the, can, the complexity just significantly increases, right? Yeah, you know, I can replicate any competitor, competitor right now and put them out of business in, in my field easily. Give me a week and I can have a clone of their company and replicate them and do what they do better and crush them. Right, so, so something that's very interesting here. Um, I actually heard this, I, I forget which podcast now, but you were explaining this to someone else who I think ha didn't have a lot of uh, machine learning experience. I'm coming from it from the way, uh, from perspective of someone who's kind of been working in related areas for a while. Yeah. But but like, I think you have a lot more knowledge than me in the kind of, um, just like the practical uses of, especially of the language models, right? Yeah. I, I worked as more of an engineer before, um, just applied machine learning. And yeah, I've certainly spent my time probably a very, uh, certainly an above average amount of time looking through, you know, just, just exploring and playing with, uh, with ChatGPT, with um, somewhat with the API end, although less, less in terms of trying to use that practically, more in terms of development. And I really do think the kind of mindset shift that you have to have with uh, machine learning is quite quite noticeably different with a lot of yeah. other tools, yeah. right? I think a lot of other tools, you're trying to get a very precise specification. You're yeah. trying to get, you know, like, this is exactly how I get X. And I can expect the same thing every time. And you're, you're doing this kind of like factory style thing. Yeah. Whereas with, uh, I think with, I think with uh, ChatGPT or with uh, language models in general, that's not the case, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's, um, I, I agree with you. That's a huge mindset shift and it's and to whatever extent this is true like i don't know some of, some of what i'm about to say is my own theory and speculation but as i no, that's fine yeah, <laughs> that's why we're here right so yeah I'm, yeah basically you're prompting me and i'm being a large language model right now hallucinating so <laughs> i think what we're yeah. seeing is that uh we've been so steeped in the industrial revolution that has been uh fine-tuned if you will 
to production of whatever, right? So you have the um, the the factory mindset, and you have the conveyor belt where things get assembled, and you follow specifications, and you follow SOPs. This the whole idea with SOPs, right? Is a way to standardize output in a way that you can reliably get the same output every single time someone does whatever it is. And that's been the mindset, and that's been the world, the way the world has been set up to function in many ways, most ways even. And business for a long time has been all about, you know, you when people talk about building a company, like they're talking about somehow, somewhere there's a product or service that you're selling and then eventually becomes standardized as to how it's fulfilled, right? So standardization, then you have all, all the all the things that go into making something repeat, repeatable and replicable. Generative AI, I think, is showing us, and this is where it also ties into machine learning, it's showing us, and it's a different way of, of just thinking and approaching reality, fundamentally, is showing us that we don't need it to be a factory in order to produce quality output. And in fact, we may exceed the value of something made if we take it out of the factory and produce it in a different way. So, like, take content as a just very simple uh, example and me being in the marketing world for a long time like the the ability for someone to produce content at this point text and images and audio and even video like generative AI has nullified and negated the existence of most marketing agencies like they don't need to exist anymore or if they do exist they better start using these tools because these tools will do what they used to do better faster cheaper and all that stuff but if you go and look at how, a, how an agency should perform or should do the work, in, in a successful agency, everything is standardized, SOPs, people follow a process, um, charts that tell you when to do what, and all these factory thinking apply to how humans do work in an agency. But I can start a one-man agency tomorrow that produces SEO articles, for example, and I can serve like 20 clients and produce all their content in a day or two. And I don't even need to standardize what I'm doing. I just need to put in the prompts into whatever tool I choose, even whether it's ChatGPT or some other content generation tool. And I just put in the details about the company and whatever the topics are, and maybe some keyword research, even though there are tools that will do that as well. And it'll produce the content, including images, in like a few hours and I don't need to SOP anything. Right, I right. Just, so, all you do is just trigger it. Yeah, so, so something very interesting about this is um, is with something like marketing, with something like I think you, I heard you talking about kind of like customer review aggregation. Yeah. Right? There's this there, there's this mindset, you know, like in, in 2015, this was all the rage, you know, like move fast <laughs> and break things, right? Yeah. This was all the rage in Silicon Valley, at least. I don't know if I don't know if that was really a thing in marketing. Um, it would it be was, funny yeah. if the marketers had that mindset. But yeah. but that's kind of the that's kind of the norm now, right? Yeah. Like you were talking about, you can automate a lot of these roles. And the question is, you know, you have a guy, um, you have a guy who's basically responsible for reading all the customer reviews and summarizing it, right? And, and that's something that you know, even if you get a human to do, that'll be based on kind of qualitative judgments. It'll be based on kind of yeah. just just a lot of split second decisions that the guy is making. And, you know, might be correct, might not be correct, but you're getting this kind of, you know, noisy representation of this very complicated thing, which is the, the totality of all of the, uh, yeah. of all of the customer reviews. And uh, can, can you just go a little bit deeper into to how that process is automated, how, how you've worked with uh, something like that? 
Yeah, it's um, I mean, it can be it can be done in any number of different ways. But a simple way is literally what I'm talking about is you having a scraper, whether you use an existing tool or you make your own in Python and you scrape reviews. Uh, and let's say you scrape reviews of your product and then like five competitor products um, and you scrape them all. You put them all into a spreadsheet. And that, and so you can, what I'm describing, you can do um, just using like Zapier or make.com and just all you're doing is stringing together different API calls and webhooks in a long string of sequences. It's basically it. But you start off by scraping it, putting it all into, let's say, a spreadsheet for the sake of organization. And then inside like a make.com setup or Zapier, you then take each individual. So you have one review per cell, right? So you have hundreds of thousands of rows of reviews. You just take those, combine them with a prompt that is specifically designed to um, prompt, take the reviews, join it together with your preset prompt, and send it off to OpenAI via API call. And the prompt is just designed to uh, call out specific things that you are looking for in the text, right? So you can do this for like objections, like what are the, and I'm going to summarize the prompt, it's a bit longer than what I'm saying, but it basically comes down to what are the practical objections, what are the emotional objections, what are the um, emotional objections that shows up in this text. And the way you construct it is also so that if there are no practical objections, like don't make some up, just tell me that there are no practical objections, you know, to kind of counter the, the, the tendency of language models to hallucinate, make stuff up and so on. Right. But you just simply ask for the kind of analysis that you're looking for, and you give examples of what it might be and what it might look like. And then you do this for objections, Maslow's hierarchy, negative sentiments, positive sentiments, what human biases show up, and you run down the list of all the different psychographic elements that marketers and salespeople know about, and probably other people know about too. But you're just applying that to reviews and you give examples and specific direction of what those are for clarity for the, uh, to, in the API call. And then OpenAI uh, will spit back an output that has read through, so to speak, all the reviews, uh, whatever can fit in a context window. And you, you probably have to split up into different steps just given the context uh, window size limit. Right. And for the audience, the context window is just the amount of uh, information ChatGPT yeah. can take in at a time or like whatever yeah. your language model is can take in at a time. But yeah. Sorry, continue. Yeah, no, that's fine. That's a good clarification. So you do that and then you just get back like um, in, in what OpenAI will then send back to your GPT-4 will send back to you is, you know, uh, out of these, let's say uh, 500 reviews, here are the practical objections and then it'll list what those objections are and give examples uh, like straight the text, like quote the reviews where those objections show up. And so just imagine that kind of format coming back to you for whatever kind of emotional and logical and textual analysis you can imagine and want to, to understand. Like there are any framework that exists in the world uh, and even one that you can make up if you define it, you can ask GPT-4 either via ChatGPT or an API call to apply that model to whatever text you give it. So like there are um, the, what do people hear, see, think, and do? That's one model for how understanding people's perception in the marketplace. Like what kind of a claim 
uh, are these? If you take the claims of your competitors, let's say you take the sales copy of your competitors where they talk about the features and benefits. Collect the same thing, scrape it, collect it all, and then ask, take that content, combine it with a prompt that asks for what are the claims that these uh, competitors are making, what are the promises they're making, what are the benefits they are outlining, and GPT-4 will analyze the text according to what you're asking for and then give you back the examples of what it is. Now, we think of it as analyzing, and I'm using the word analyzing, but obviously it doesn't, technically speaking, analyze text in the way that we would do. It just, through the predictive uh, token completion that it performs, it's able to figure that out is what it comes down to. And then string that together in a long series of prompts, API calls and webhooks that goes off to sends the prompt off, collects it back into a, a sheet inside a workbook if you use a spreadsheet to collect it all. And you can have, like I have a few of these set up and I think the longest one I have is like some, um, it goes from review to all the way to finished campaign copy and it's about 80 some steps involved. Um, but it took me like two or three days to set it up and trial run it and run it. And then I spent another few days just like tweaking the prompts to get to closer to what I'm looking for. But now it exists. And I literally feed it, the way I triggered that particular sequence is I give it a URL of my product or anyone's product, and then the URLs of uh, competitor products. If I do this for a client, I take their product and then their competitor's product. And I simply paste it into a spreadsheet inside Airtable, and I start the whole process by just saying, here's my product, or here's my client product, and then here are the competitor, competitor's product. And then it goes from the analysis all the way down to creating a campaign with copy um, that is based off of the reviews and the, um, the text from my product and my competitor's products. And so it gives me a report on all the emotions, the, uh, all the things that the review uh, text expresses, all the things that the sales copy expresses. And then it creates a campaign with 100 ads uh, 20 emails and like five landing pages that is based off of the analysis and done in a way that it can be directly used to compete against my competitors. And that's just one way to string together prompts and webhooks and API calls. And it's the variation is endless and the possibilities are really endless. But yeah, it's this, this is fascinating yeah. to me. Because, um, I mean, most of the companies I've worked at have a marketing department, but I've never really, you know, never really worked in the marketing department, yeah. never really gotten a kind of uh, close and upfront understanding of it. And it does seem like it, it, it does seem like uh, to me uh, that very large parts of this industry are, uh, if not automatable, or at least like enhanceable uh, through uh, language models, yeah. right? Yeah. So, absolutely. so what would you say the the values or the skills that people have uh, in in this industry? What skills are going to go up in value relative to relative yeah. to the other ones? Right. Yeah, and it's um, so over the next year, uh, the most valuable skill is your ability to handle the tech side. Not that you need to become a developer. You don't need to learn code, even though that will be helpful. But you don't need to because. Just become familiar with API calls, no code tools, and so on. You can string this stuff together, but that's only going to last you for maybe a year at most. At best case scenario, mm -hmm. that skill set will last you for a year. Best case. 
uh, it's probably really only six, five months, but whatever. That, that's, if, you, if, you, if you're not technical now, then you should become fairly technical in that you know how to string. What I just explained, you can do inside Zapier or make.com or pipe dream. And if I can do it, uh, then you can, whoever's listening to this, because all you have to do is string it together and you don't even do the work. You just make the right API call, which you don't even have to know how to script. It, it's helpful if you do, but you don't need to know because you just, you select options inside the menus. But you, you need to have some level of tech skill upgrade just to really catch up. But a year from now, when that skill is no longer any advantage at all, the only, from here on, from that year and on out, the, the most valuable skill sets are instinct, perspective, imagination, discernment, and judgment. Hmm, and yes. those are the skills that you, you if you're not, practicing them now, then you got to start now because those are, those are the last human skills to go, so to speak. <laughs> and when they're gone, what those skills that I just shared will help you develop is wisdom. And that'll be the lasting thing for at least another 50 years. And then who knows after that? Right. I, I should say, I should say, uh, I somewhat disagree with your your pace of this I, i'm not sure <laughs> what context you work uh if, if you're in maybe a more boutique kind of consultancy thing then maybe i agree with you but i think for most people in most marketing departments right i, I do think it's very valuable certainly the direction is correct i agree with you that those skills are very valuable but i mean if you just look at economic forecasts of or, or economic records of technology adoption in the past, whether it's something like the internet, the fax machine, right? Going all the way back, I think like Bernofsen is someone who's done a lot of work on this, uh, who many people who I trust have recommended me uh, to. You see that this, this pace of technological adoption often takes literally a generational kind of turning over. Yeah, right? but that's so, not, sorry, go ahead, finish your thought. Yes. Yeah, so, so I think that on the kind of elite level, on the kind of cutting edge, you know, if you really want to make your name, um, name for yourself, as, as I think you do, right? I, I think that you're right. In the kind of corporate level, in the kind of like, you know, how, what, is the, what is the impact this is going to have on the American or the average American? I do think it's going to be a much slower tide. But you can go ahead. You, you can yeah. tell me I'm wrong. I, I, I love that. <laughs> well, I mean, one of us is or maybe somewhere in between, right? But here's... So... I've seen those charts and I've seen those arguments made and I get like, I get, I get, I do understand where that's coming from. And I think there's a, there's a very real, you're probably, that and you are probably more likely to be accurate than I am. But here's why I think you're wrong. This, the adoption needed for these tools is becoming near, near nothing because all of these little, like Microsoft is creating a Clippy 2.0 on steroids. that will just be inside word. Right? right, so it's going to be inside Excel, PowerPoint. All of these, um, all the different kinds of language models are becoming integrated into software that people are already using to the point where they don't even need to go to ChatGPT and and adapt and adopt how they do work based off of what's in ChatGPT and so on. It's just going to exist in the context they're in. So there is mm. no. It's a smaller timeline window of adoption and we're not even talking about adoption in the way that yet they have to adjust what they're doing they don't have to adjust what they're doing when these tools are ubiquitous inside all the pieces of software that people use daily 
there's nothing for them to adapt or adopt to. It's just going to be there. And then once it's good enough, as in trained, let's say I have a way of creating PowerPoint slides, right? Once the model inside PowerPoint knows how I like to make my slides, it'll get to the point where I just give it a one, two, or three, or a paragraph description of the kind of presentation I want, and then it'll make it for me. There is nothing to adapt to at that point. It's getting, and maybe, I think Sam Altman said something to this effect in a tweet. So I'm going to butcher what he said and probably mis, misapply <laughs> a thought that he might not agree with. But the way he said it and what I took from it was that um, technology, this tech and tech in general is trending toward the simplicity of language. So when I, when I wake up in the morning or I go into work one day and I can essentially accomplish my work for the day or faster by simply either talking to my computer or typing up the instructions. There's nothing to adopt to. There's no adaptation required. I don't have to change my behavior in the way that technology has forced us to change our behavior up until now. So for the first time in, I don't know how long, but hundreds of years at least, maybe even longer, we're at the point now where tech has to adapt and adopt to us. And we don't have to contort and distort ourselves to fit in with tech anymore. Right. That, that, that does seem like a somewhat compelling point. Uh, I'm not sure how much it differs. I, I'm not sure because at, at every given point, right, companies, firms always have the incentive to, to adapt the technology to people, right? right? I agree with you that this time it does seem easier. I agree with that you that, you know, like instead of, you know, learning a completely new technology, you can just have it built into slides. I agree with you that Microsoft is pretty likely to do that. I guess all of this is just a question of degree, right? Sure. The, the question of how much, you know, if you are an average, I don't know, I, I would suspect there's not too many average office workers listening to this podcast, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, but for the average office worker, how much basically return are you going to have in kind of changing your original behaviors? And how much of that, like you said, is going to be basically no no change required? I, I do think I agree with you that there's going to be a lot more of the no hate, no change required. That's definitely going to be a trend. And I think that the power of Microsoft as an already dominant player, that's definitely going to factor into it. But I do think that there are going to be longer term returns. Yeah, I think that there's going to be basically a bimodal distribution, right? There, there's going to be a lot of like immediate new stuff integrated to Microsoft Office, just things that would have taken an hour or now take five minutes or now take one minute. Right. And there's going to be a second, there's second curve that's going to look a lot like the skills that you described, that people are going to have to play catch up, that they are going to have to learn to approach these things in a different way, in this like very different qualitative way. And I think that that's something I want to focus on. We we already touched on it a little bit, but exploring those unknown unknowns, in a way, it kind of it kind of gets to a better sense of what creativity actually is. Yeah. Right. So, so mm -hmm. continuing on your story from before, you get this you get this kind of factory style world, this factory style mindset in business. Everything is about basically systematizing things in 
a way that's predictable. And then you get these pretty high variance models that are powerful and that are useful because they are high variance as a kind of necessary precondition to the technology itself. Mm. And yeah, I think people are learning to relate to it even now, right? Even now people are learning to relate to it. And by that, I just mean, you know, use it basically this kind of, you know, informal prompt engineering that people are doing. Right. They're learning to explore it in a much more kind of holistic or much more, um, much more intuitive way than than they're used to with other technologies you know it it, it yeah. really is this kind of miraculous thing because you're seeing you know academics uh even even some politicians you know even some some staffers uh certainly many certainly many software engineers i think they're already used to doing that but certainly many software engineers all of these people from different walks of life really changing i think their approach their, their default approach to technology or to tool use because of these because of these language models specifically yeah and so i think like yeah you, so, so you mentioned some of these values you mentioned uh essentially wisdom essentially yeah so, so, so go go deeper on what exactly the kind of practical or or the kind of uh you know the, the kind of experience of interacting with a language model and getting better intuitions of uh, of prompt engineering and of setting up these workflows. H- how exactly do you build that skill? How exactly do you practice that skill? Uh, I'll, I'll give it like the, the most generic answer possible that is paradoxically the most helpful answer. And then I'll uh, go into some more detail. True, great, what it, yeah. yeah, what it comes down to is practice turning thoughts into words and expressing those thoughts in words and sentences that are that covers the spectrum of imperative, declarative, interrogative, and exclamative. So practice that. Practice good communication. That's one thing. And I make the distinction between instinct and intuition. I think intuition is the wrong place to look. I think we have to look at instinct. Uh, intuition can be faked and it can be uh, wrong. Instinct is rarely wrong. And along with that goes sense of taste, judgment, discernment, perspective, and so on. And wisdom right. is only the thing that emerges once you practice those. But those skills, taste, discernment, judgment, perspective, and instinct gets practiced through language. And so it all comes down to communication and language. And uh, at least in English, I don't know if it's true of all languages, probably not. But in English, you have essentially four sentence types, imperative, declarative, interrogative, and exclamative. And up until right, I was just going to ask you to go deeper on yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, what, what exactly do each of those mean, first of all? I don't so like, really know. In, imperative is like turn turn on the water. Declarative right. is the water is on. Interrogative is what temperature is the water. And then exclamative is the water is too hot. Um, and so it basically this, when um, up until now, when we're interacting and interfacing with computers and software and systems, we, it's mostly happening on an imperative and declarative type kind of way. Like there are right. commands in the computer and then the computer declares something back to us, so we declare something to the computer. But what's happening with large language models is that now we're beginning to use uh, or in, usage and interfacing with these models and systems and software and tech in an interrogative and exclamative way, meaning that you can now, in a sense, interrogate 
your company da data and information if you have a model that's either uh, accessed it through a vector search or is a fine-tuned model, whichever way you want to slice and dice it. But you can now essentially interrogate your company. If you're, let's say you're, you're, say you're the CEO, you can open up your laptop in the morning in your office and you can start to interrogate, quote unquote, what's happening with your company and what you should be doing and how you should think about the next few quarters and what strategic initiatives you should engage with and so on and so forth. And I'm using that in that business context, but the same behavior is now true for anything you're doing. I can interrogate Shakespeare if I want, all his sonnets, and I can uh, ask, so to speak, Shakespeare as to why he wrote a sonnet the way he wrote it and what's special about that particular sonnet compared to another particular sonnet, simply because the language model will be able to predict what that answer would be based on all that it does behind the scenes. So now all of a sudden you can interrogate what you have in front of you or a business or a body of work. And here, like here's also where um, judgment and sense of taste will be easier to practice because now you can reach a desired output with exclamative statements, even if you aren't 100% clear of what the outcome should be. So it's like the Goldilocks thing, the water's too hot, it's too cold, it's too hot, it's too cold, but eventually you arrive at the right temperature. And so you can get output now, whatever it is, text, images, like whatever, you name it, and even answers or ideas that it's like that statement um, that's been tossed around for years. And I never know, I can never remember who said it, but it's like, how do you know something is porn? Well, you know it when you see it. So in the right, right. It, it was this judge. Uh, I, I don't remember the yeah. name either. You know it was from a famous, famous uh, legal case. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so same thing now. Like you can open up ChatGPT and you have a, a an instinct as to what you're looking for, but it's kind of vague. But then through interaction of different exclamative uh, statements and sentences, you can uh, you can have it adjust the output all the way to the point where you go, that's what I'm looking for. And so when you can interact with software, essentially a large language model on top of whatever you're doing, and you can, via the usage of a large language model, arrive at an output simply by giving it statements of different kinds and sentences of different kinds, you can now get to the output. There is no adaptation to make. You don't have to adjust what you're doing. You just have to be a human. And in, this is probably like the, the irony of of the past is a plot twist of the century where paradoxically and the irony of it all is that we we can with proper use of ai and machine learning tools fundamentally we can actually become more human through the use of it now not all usage will go that way there's a wrong way to use these and there's a way where these tools can become dehumanizing toward us but properly used in the right context in the right way these tools can you know, paradoxically become tools that help us become more human because we have to practice the skill sets, the behaviors, and all the things that make us human. We have to use those to accomplish what we need to see done. Right. Something very important that I think has been overlooked either societally or economically has just been taste, right? You yeah, focus right. on this has been actually, you know, this has been an intuition of mine or, or an instinct, however you want to categorize it, for for quite a while now, e even before I started really in machine learning, um, I have a kind of theoretical math background. And even then, you know, yeah. e even this kind of, from the outside perspective, very 
rationalistic, very mechanical process. It involves mm. a lot of, you know, it feels right. This seems like the right approach to it. <laughs> I, I don't really know why. I'll write the proof later, you know? Yeah. Right. And that seems that that does indeed seem to me like a very human thing. And and I've had a lot of interactions with people like this is a very kind of post post GPT uh, post chat GPT interaction I've had with people yeah. where they say you know like this forces me to engage in this very inhuman way and I'm like what you think this is an inhuman way how how do you talk to people how, yeah. how, how are you going through your normal life you know <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, okay. So, so this is a group of people actually that is very prevalent in in my audience. But if you are say a recovering rationalist, <laughs> you're someone Yeah, yeah, exactly. If, if you're a recovering rationalist, if you're someone who has 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 lost uh has lost the sense of taste to enjoy life, you know? Okay, I, I should I should maybe bring this down a little bit. But if you're a recovering rationalist, if you're someone who um doesn't go through life with as much as these instincts who who is used to engaging in a much more kind of mechanical way what is how do you start this kind of journey right what, what yeah. are your what are your first steps uh so we we are as humans we are pattern seeking pattern making and pattern generating and like we'll if we don't find a pattern we'll make a pattern and maybe there's actually a point where the pattern we're discovering is just us making a pattern in real time so look for patterns and apply them to other categories. So for example, like why would Julia Stets have anything to do with text? Why would it? Like there's no rational reason as to why it would, but I applied that, whatever you want to call it, that fractal, that kind of fractal pattern and applied it to text. And it turns out that if you do do that and whichever other patterns you want to find from elsewhere, fractals and so on and so forth, and you apply it to an unrelated field, you can uncover the unknown unknowns. It turns out that if I apply Julia sets as a way of writing a copy, which was the example I was using, then the copy that it produces, so like ad copy, uh, converted right. better than any other pattern that I tried. Hmm, really? Yeah. And so, but like, how would I know? There's no way I would know that. Like, there was no, like, no, nothing told me that, you know what, Sam, like Julia sets written as text, like, there you go, do that. I just thought it would be fun to see what would happen if I could make it that way. And then I did. And then that ad copy was the highest performing ad copy that I've ever run on any network anywhere for anything. And so what I would say is start applying patterns and concepts and models from different fields to different unrelated fields. And one thing also to to like bring to this is I think at the at peak rationality, whatever that might look like, I think there the the line between is a liminal space. And the line between the rational and the irrational in a good way or, or what most rationalists would think of as being irrational the line gets blurred at peak rationality and you enter into liminal space where things all of a sudden become almost infinitely possible in a way that you didn't understand or didn't know before. And when you're talking about, you know, making the call before, like this seems right. And this, uh, you know, so something is, is, how can I say this in a way that makes sense? So when you have that instinct, which most people will say intuition, I, I call it an instinct. Um, but when you have that instinct, what's happening 
is that you're entering into peak rationality, which is a liminal space, and you're starting to get a glimpse of what else is possible. You're starting to get a glimpse of, if you will, what the multiverse can look like and what other possible worlds there are. And so it's, it's like a, you've gone full circle. You've gone as far away as you can from what's usually thought of as irrational, uh, thinking that you're reaching peak rationality, but you really come back to square one. Uh, but you're doing so in a way that now all of a sudden you can enter into other possibilities for a solution to a problem or for a move you need to make or for a decision you need to make. And what we're seeing now with, uh, I, I think, fundamentally, the, the biggest cognitive shift that's, that's happening and that will accelerate from here on out is that beauty is coming back for her revenge. Yes, yes. And so... When you have that instinct and it comes to you, and even when people discover um, mathematical proofs and formulas and so on, anytime you get into the, the deep science of things, you always, and if you go far enough, you always end up in a place where the scientist or the mathematician will go, I don't know, but the answer came to me. Somehow. Right, somehow. right, Ramanujan, right Ramanujan in his dream. Uh, has uh, has the Hindu god giving him uh, yeah. giving him the theorems? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Uh, one of my friends uh, who's been on the show actually, Brett Anderson. Uh, he has this new series up, uh, or the, the the videos are new. The series is continuing. Uh, reevaluation of all values, where he goes into this as well. I think there's been some uh, neuroscience research on this as well. On yeah, on the application of basically this liminal yeah. uh, decision-making, this creative decision-making as opposed to, as opposed to the more systematized version that it, it occurs in areas where there's high complexity, where there's been a kind of developed pattern, where there's been a developed way of understanding things, you know, like the jazz musician. Right. I, I think that, yeah, I think that there's a lot there. What's, it, what's it, his it, name? It, you mentioned his name. I want to re hear more right, about the series. Yeah, and for the for the viewers, I'll definitely or for the listeners, I'll definitely have it in the in the link below, uh, and, and I can send you it as well. Yeah, please do. Um, yeah, Brett Anderson. I think his his Substack is just his name, Brett Anderson. Uh, cool, man. I'm doing a plug for him in the middle of a different podcast. But, you know, <laughs> that, that, that's that's you get that from being on the show. You know, that's an additional <laughs> benefit of coming on the From the New World podcast is that you'll get plugged well, I wanna, in other episodes. Yeah, <laughs> but well, based on what you were saying, I want to I know what yeah. Brett is thinking and saying. But I, I, I think that it's, um, yeah, beauty is coming back for her revenge. And the, the paradox and the irony is that she's wielding AI in one hand uh, and then other things in her other hand, and she's coming to exact her judgment. And when we're getting, now where we are now, I think with, What's happening with machine learning and, um, as they say, AI, um, I think we're, we're entering into a liminal space and where the only path forward that is generative for all of us, and not just in the, in the generative AI sense, but gen truly generative for us as humans, um, the, the glimpses people are seeing is beauty and they have different names for it and different, you know, different ways of explaining it. But fundamentally, it is beauty in the way that it's a true encounter with, with true reality. And there is symmetry and um, an organizing principle at the heart of it that makes the world make sense. 
And so like sense-making studies have become a big deal, uh, not just amongst academia, but also amongst companies. Like there are more sense-making courses for hmm. companies now than there has ever been. And so people are trying to grapple and make sense of what's happening inside companies. And I think that it's, it's just a, a, a reflection of also people trying to make sense of, of the world and what's happening with their, whatever, their loved ones, their families, their, their life and so on. And so people are in a mode of sense-making because we're in a liminal space and the path through a liminal space happens when you catch a glimpse of what life can be like and that is a life that is fundamentally saturated in beauty right right so yeah this is really interesting because um on one hand there's been these there's been these online mostly online movements and so, so you're saying that you're seeing this kind of like sense making thing. That that's a thing that I definitely really associate with the kind of online circles that I'm in. So, right. so, so you're saying that there's been more of this in kind of companies. Um, wh where is that showing up? It's showing up in workshops that companies pay for. So, like, if you want, hmm. if you ever want to get a sense of, um, like, one good trend uh, spotting tool, which most people don't use, but look at how corporations are spending their money, what they're spending money on. Because what, when they when a corporation gets to this point to the point whether it's a large corporation or a small one, but like the average corporation and what they're spending money on, when it gets to the point where they're spending money on something, it is because in their mind and in their boardrooms and in their strategic offsite planning meetings, they're all going, "What's going to be? What do we need to do now that's going to help us in the next one to five years? Whatever their window of planning is, right?" So, to them, based on what they're seeing on the ground based on what they're hearing from their employees and vendors and so on, when they're spending money on something that's not their core business, like fulfilling the blue widget production, whatever they're spending money on that's not their core business, that's a very, very good trend spotting um, heuristic to have that can help you understand where the world is going and also what priorities are and where people think everything is heading because when they make that money, spend the money now, they do so with a window of one to five years, as in they believe that this skill set of whatever it is, is going to matter in the next year to five years. And so when they're spending a crap ton of money on sense making stuff, workshops and books and all the things, then to me, that tells me, okay, that's a priority because they're dealing with a workforce that's largely running around with their heads cut off like headless chicken and they're trying to make sense of everything and grapple with everything because they know that an unproductive employee is someone who has no clue what's going on but a productive one is someone who can see the future to some degree and then realigns their work to fit in with what that future might be so if they're spending money on it a ton which they are then that is a good indicator of what life is like for a lot of people just even outside of work Right, right. Well, what do these workshops look like? Like, is it pretty similar to the kind of online, you know, like the kind of Game B forums, you know, the, the, the stuff that I'm... It's probably a watered-down yeah. version of that stuff. Like, there's, there's one framework that's actually, like, it's popular, but it's also, um, like, fun enough, useful. And that's the uh, Kinefin framework by David Snowden. And it spells, it's, it's Welsh for, uh, I think it's Welsh, yeah, for a sense of place. And that Kinefin framework, the C-Y-N-E-F-I-N, Kinefin. And what it does is that it gives you a sense of two things, where you are and what time is it. And so it's a decision-making framework that 
helps with making decisions. And it, it, you essentially exist in one of um, five domains. It's either chaotic, complex, complicated, clear, or there's confusion. And depending on which domain you're in, that tells you how you should act and what you should expect from your actions. And the, the layer on top of that is that you also then understand what time is it. Like there's a time and place for everything and how you act in a complicated domain is different than how you act in a chaotic or complex domain. And timing starts to matter more as in there's a sense of tempo and momentum to what you're doing because you can move from one domain to the other but when you move comes down to timing and where you're at and what you're doing and what kind of feedback you get from the world around you. Right. So, so like something that's, that's interesting, maybe you've been in more of the space than me at this point is, is the kind of meta environment that's built up around uh, machine learning, mm -hmm. right? You have a lot of people, posting newsletters i mean i do i do kind of have a, a machine learning newsletter but it's very different i like your newsletter it's very informative yeah. oh thank you thank you um yeah it, it, it's quite different i think than most of what people are posting about yeah which is good what do you think yeah. of the online environment that's built around this right it's something that's worried me a bit about the sense making space is that it's kind of drifted off into you know some pretty crazy stuff like what? Um, like what? Of course, not all of it, but um, I mean, you know, do you know who Brett Weinstein is? Yeah, Dark Horse podcast. Is that yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Like, so he's like pretty against you know like COVID vaccines stuff like that, right? Ooh. It kind of ended up, it kind of ended up in a kind of fragmentation, right? Where yeah. where where I think you know there's him, there's Sam Harris, you know, a right. lot okay. of the early yeah. kind of people. Um, Sam, Sam Harris also has his own kind of like, I mean, people, mutual friends of Sam Harris say that they're just rhetorical tricks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I am willing to grant that charitable interpretation, but we can say like <laughs> Sam Harris has some weird rhetorical tricks, yeah. weird things he says that definitely, if taken literally, are like very incorrect yeah. You know, um, I, I'm not sure if there's a single good article about this, but I, I actually spoke a little bit with uh, with Jacob Siegel, should, who should actually be the episode right before this, I think, or two episodes before this, oh, maybe, cool. uh, about this. Um, yeah, like, like there's really value in rhetorical trickery, like there's value in being polemical and there's value in being interrupt you. But like, I, I want to just slide that in. There's value in doing so. I think it can go overboard. But it, there is value to it. And really what it is, uh, fundamentally, like whatever um, tricks those are and the polemical style and so on is really meant for a reason. And it is really to like jolt people out of what they're currently just enmeshed in. And so there's value in it. Um, and I think you have to see it as, a, as the trickster archetype that essentially achieves a good outcome with questionable means. Yeah. I think like, I don't know. Do you, do you see a similar thing in that with like kind of AI threads? I think that like yeah. once in a while, the thing is, I think people kind of still underrate AI threads. Yeah. But every once in a while, I'll read something. And I'll just, and it'll just be completely wrong. And it'll be as viral as any of the other AI threads. Yeah. And yeah. 
it'll just be like, you know, you can go, you can open like ChatGPT and try this. And it's just clearly false. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, I, I do think there is every time, you know, this isn't to say that the kind of negatives overwhelm the positives, but I do think that it is a, it, it is a reasonable concern every time, you know, that there is some new topic of interest. Uh, how, how do we keep that from basically, or, or like, how do we well, yeah. kind of avoid yeah. basically it being dominated by people who are just like wrong and lazy? Yeah. Like, well, it's, you gotta pretty much ignore it. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> but like, that's a short answer. The the longer answer to that is it's um, like the incentive on Twitter is not to be accurate and factual. It's just to write something that gets the engagement. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. And so I think see it as another rhetorical trick, which, you know, has value to some degree and maybe to less value to others. I do know that whenever I see, and I know what you're talking about, uh, but whenever I see a tweet or a thread about um, AI, machine learning, ChatGPT, whatever the heck it is, and it's clearly just factually wrong, like it's just factually wrong. But if I act on it in opposition to it, as in I go, that's not true. And then I go to like ChatGPT and to try it out and to essentially prove it wrong for myself or whatever. And I never fail to discover something else while doing so. Hmm. And so that's I a take very, it. That's but, a very nice way to look at it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I take it as a, it's like a challenge. Like, you know what? This is not true. It's not accurate. But what else can I discover even if I apply it. it it comes down to and i don't know what to call this maybe it's a maxim or something else but one of my core uh simple heuristics i have is that uh only bad ideas can become great ideas good ideas have a feeling <laughs> they can only go so far they're capped but bad ideas are, have unlimited potential to become great ideas uh, that, that's a good way to think about it i i think that yeah he, people are definitely way too pessimistic on these things you know the existence of bad information does not prevent the existence of good information you know no but bad information has always existed yeah even bad ideas you know you can you can get some good use out of them uh so, so i think like nearly near the second half of this uh i want to talk a bit about the kind of political ideas so, so the way you actually first caught my attention is with this great piece in american mind I, I think i actually started i think i started this podcast off by mentioning that and then we proceeded to not <laughs> yeah, talk about not it for an about hour it. <laughs> yeah yeah that, that, that's great that's great but yeah how has the American mind been like exceptionally open? That that's certainly what it seems like to me. I've not had too much background interaction with them. Yeah. But but have they been kind of like actively trying to do outreach and and get more AI coverage? I it seems to me that way. I think uh, maybe reluctantly so. Even like I I don't work for them, so I don't know exactly what's going on behind closed doors. But my my impression is, and this is probably just by virtue of being uh, in opposition, this is probably what happens when you're in opposition. Like, so the, the rule gosh, how do I say this? I sound like a conspiracy nut. Um, I think it's fairly obvious where the political leanings fall inside Silicon Valley, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's fairly obvious. I yeah. Think. Yeah. There, there's polling data on this, you know, my, yeah. my audience pays good, good attention to politics. Like this is kind of a political podcast. Yeah. Right? They, they know, you know, like they've seen the chart of Silicon Valley donations. Yeah. So Silicon Valley is definitely left wing. It's largely left wing. That's not a conspiracy theory. Yeah. It's just, but you know, yeah. so you, you can turn that into a conspiracy. Anyway, the point is that it's largely left leaning. And I think because it is, uh, sometimes the only way to see clearly 
uh, is not necessarily by taking the opposite view, because I don't think Hegel's dialectic is any useful anymore, but it's more so about taking a view where you are uh, seeing past what's happening in front of your eyes. And so, like, if you listen to Sam, someone like Sam Altman or other people in front of Congress and so on, uh, in theory, it sounds great that everyone is concerned about AI safety. Like, that's, you know, when it comes down to it, it it's, it's a good thing that people aren't trying to nuke us all into oblivion. Like, this is generally speaking a good thing. And, but here's, like, here's also where, uh, where you then can easily see past it. They're using, uh, the, the idea of AI safety as, um, it's just a means to acquire power is really what comes down to it. And I think right, when, right, when right, you're not in power, you are far more aware of power dynamics than when you are in power. Yeah, I think like th this is also something that gets like improperly cast as a conspiracy theory right. when it is actually just literally mainstream economics. Yeah. Right. The, the, the mainstream <laughs> economics yeah. understanding of and this is of course backed by backed by the empirics backed by what actually has happened in the past is that you know when there is when when businesses try to cooperate with government for regulation yeah it like it empirically is the case that most often they're trying to do regulatory capture yeah they end totally. up squeezing yeah. out competitors so so yeah i i agree the the, the dangers on that end are certainly underrated i, I will say like the, there's kind of you know there, there's this uh, model of the bootleggers and the Baptists, right? That economists have this model, yeah. right? And, and I do think that's kind of the case that, that there's basically like the true believers that there are some good people who yeah. are genuinely concerned about like what happens if they scale up AI too far, right? right. And, and like, th those people like are, are like genuinely good people and they genuinely believe what they say. Um, and, but, yeah. and on the other end, you have uh, you have people who solely want regulatory capture, or people who just just want political power yeah i would say like there, there's kind of this is kind of the problem with like online hyper concentrated online circles of like basically all people which is basically like all people who have like some kind of like uh some kind of like thought out knowledge on this is that they'll kind of gain a wrong understanding of kind of what the actual fight is right sure. so so sure. i'm kind of crossing this barrier now i used to be mostly online i mostly did kind of like practical machine learning engineering work and then i got somewhat involved with politics and i'm crossing the circle now like the major threat the major regulatory threat is not really coming from kind of eas are not really coming from the kind of existential risk people sure right like major regulatory threat is basically like traditional political coalitions you know the kinds of people who are worried about quote-unquote misinformation or are worried about kind of uh machine le learning correctly predicting say like differing uh differing group statistics yeah right it it, it is just like very it's just like the the typical clowns that you see on any on any day on Capitol Hill, well, right? It's not really if it were if it were the EAs, we would actually have like less of a problem. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I I can see that, and and I would say generally I agree. I think to tie that back into like why a place like American Mind and so on, and generally people who would be considered to be on the right in different spectrum of a degree. Why do they sometimes or often, at least now, get some of the the this these issues right? And why, like, and and I appreciate you hearing that you liked my piece. Like, that's I'm glad some someone did and someone um, like got something out of it. I think fundamentally, what it comes down to is um, the biggest trick ever played on us is that metaphysics don't matter or that we are still dealing with substance metaphysics, and fundamentally, we're not. 
and sorry, sorry, can you just explain to the audience what that means? Yeah, so um, and this ties back to what I said about Hegel. Like Hegel needs to be passed on to the whatever the expression is, Ashtabh <laughs> yeah. history and all that stuff. And his dialectic is is a dead end, doesn't lead anywhere, and doesn't do anything other than just destroy. It can't create anything new. And instead, a better uh, metaphysics to adopt or at least to get comfortable with is Alfred North Whitehead and process. Um, and because that what that fundamentally was true about and I, I don't necessarily agree with uh, Northhead on every single thing he ever wrote on process but what it gets right is that we are in a state of concrescence at any given moment which is we're in a state of creativity and it's not even about a state it's being in a process of creativity where we are becoming who we are at any given moment and that's a better way of approaching life in general but also seeing technology through that lens where there whether it is regulatory capture or wielding it for someone's own power ideas and dynamics and, and desires the the underlying fundamental mindset behind that view and that usage is substance metaphysics and keeping things fairly static and so you're in a you're you're trapped in a mindset of state awareness and of state management, and all you're doing is just managing events and states throughout life. We're not in that world anymore, and maybe we never were, but to a degree we were, because now we have like modern civilization came out of the ideas of metaphysics and of substance metaphysics, and so to a large degree it was useful. But this is what I said: it's a good idea, but good ideas have caps. And only so they can only go so far. And so substance metaphysics can only go so far before it kind of taps out and turns in on itself and becomes self-destructive. And that's what we're seeing now with a lot of what's happening politically. The, we're, in a, we're trapped in a self-destructive cycle and state where we're just going at each other. The only way forward is to change how you uh, your picture of metaphysics and how you view life and then by extent technology and instead, think of it something more as process philosophy, where you're in a process continually, and you can you bring with you something from the past, and then the future comes in at you and becomes real in you as you move forward in time. The the one of the many flaws of substance metaphysics is that uh, it just it doesn't deal with time very well. It doesn't handle time. It doesn't handle change at all very well. Like the Greeks thought um, that the highest form of the divine was like a, essentially a, a dead end, like a, a static divine. Right, right. This un- is Aristotle's god. Right? Yeah, the unmoved mover, right? So it's just yeah. right. And, but like the world is not an unmoved mover, and we are not unmoved movers. We are living beings that uh, change and evolve down on a cellular level at any given moment. And so, with that in mind, you realize that okay. What I'm seeing in front of me, when I'm seeing Sam Altman and all these other people in Congress, and when I'm hearing what these senators say, and who most of them don't even understand like what a computer is to begin with, right. then you have all these other forces who are, you know, the incentive is AI doomerism, but it, it, it negates the fundamental idea of what life is. Life is generative. Life is ever creating, ever evolving, ever existing, ever moving. And so you, it's a the AI doomerism all the way down to the regulatory capture it's a, is a dead end and it's a dead philosophy underlying it because it cannot conceive of life as moving forward and constantly being created and evolving. It's, it's a fundamental anti-human and anti-life philosophy and it needs to end because it's bringing us all these bad stuff and the only way forward is to see things as a generative process ever generating, ever creating. What exists can give life to something new. 
So I'm fundamentally not AI maxi or even AI positive. I just see it as a way to force this conversation to happen, which is overdue. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This really ties in into, I think, a lot of the stuff I've been discussing on this podcast. It is the case. Actually, let me start with this anecdote because this is an anecdote I see of basically pure insanity. And (laughs) yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So so this is an anecdote. It's actually a very mundane anecdote. Uh, I was just talking with, this was in a social situation with like 10 people-ish, right? And I was just talking with this friend who's like normally very smart and even like kind of willing to admit uncomfortable truths, like by no means a kind of excessive partisan. But she was basically saying, uh, she, she was basically saying she found small, she found small buildings uh, or, or small homes uh, distasteful. She didn't like them. She, she felt very uncomfortable yeah. in small homes. And she she just thought, you know, uh, so these things are inhuman. We should ban them for everyone. Wow. And this, to me, is just a way of thinking that is literally deranged. Yeah, <laughs> um, it is. It's a way of thinking where I think that people, people kind of, internalize first of all there are kind of psychological studies of people you know negativity bias this is one of if not the most yeah. well re- well-known result of kind of psych- psychological differences but yeah um yeah you, you have risk aversion but it's more than that it, it's not just a kind of risk aversion to oneself you know like you know it's an it's an evolved reality you know this was a survival strategy in the past that's understandable but it's this kind of push for conformity yeah. that everyone that kind of someone else doing something is kind of de facto um something i should be worried yeah. about right that, that the kind of de facto state of relationship between two people is one of basically like hyper vigilance yeah it, it's, um, it's childish it's 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 uh it's an adult it's a baby in an adult's body whoever expresses those ideas because it's fundamentally self-centered and selfish and childish to think that way right right and what's more is that it creates this kind of it creates this basically like political incentive that's like pretty much a race to the bottom right yeah, right yeah. um if not in the kind of strict economic sense in the practical in the kind of like everyday usage of the term yeah right where essentially the 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 political incentive is to like you said like you said earlier to demagogue about these things to create yeah. all sorts of unrealistic claims uh and really i think I mean, here, here's the most worrying part is that there does seem to be a fairly large political coalition of people who are more worried about what other people yeah. will will do <laughs> with this technology than who who want to use it themselves, right? Yeah, right. Well, it's it's this is how you know uh, this is the quest for power. It's always like if if you can't control other people, then you're going to try to control other people and. AI just happens to be the latest battlefield where that plays out. And uh, you know, on the political spectrum, you have, um, and maybe at some point, the very extreme left and very extreme right meet to some degree. I don't know how true that is, but that's kind of the, the usual common trope. But it's, mm-hmm. it's the idea that like uh, you have to control other people and you have to be in power, but it's only ever used, like if you're not in power, then you're using things like free speech to get to power, but when you are in power, you then aim to control it and 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 destroy it essentially. And so it's 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 people who this is why I said it's childish. It's like it's immature, it's childish, it's selfish, it's self-centered to have it's a I think that 
certain political uh, side of the spectrum, along with AI doomerism, it's all a death cult at the end of it. Like they're all trying to die in different ways and trying to commit suicide in different ways. And they're trying to get, oh my. and then they're trying to drag as many people with them as possible. Not like literal suicide, but they have this tendency to aim for the destruction of things. And um, because they have fundamentally, they have a hatred to toward reality. And I would say they're agnostic in their beliefs, which is fundamentally an anti-human, anti-life, uh, philosophy and the death cult. And so we're seeing this, like, when I look at AI doomerism, when I see people on, on usually the left who are uh, wanting to control what we do, say, go and live and how we do things, it's a death cult and it's agnostic belief at the fundamental heart of it. And they hate life. They hate themselves. They hate humans. They hate the world. And they're trying to grab as many as they can with them in their own spiral of destruction. Yeah, I'm kind of worried that that's a little bit too broad of a brush. Like, I think most people believe most things for kind of a very... There's a lot of variance, right? You know, sure. you actually talk to people. The, the, most people, you know, most movements are made up of people who believe things for, like, entirely different reasons. I do see, I, I do see what you're talking about. I do see what you're talking about in some areas. Um I think, like, certainly the kind of, like, disinformation people are kind of like this, right? Um, yeah, I would I would advise against kind of painting too broad of a brush there. But um, you did you, you did mention a keyword there that I am very interested in. Um, actually, let me tell this story. So, like, around a, around a year ago, I interviewed James Poulos for this episode, our mutual friend James Poulos. Mm. Um, and then we scheduled a part two. Because he, he he had a short cutoff and we only recorded for around like an hour. Yeah. So we scheduled a part two. And um, uh, so, something came up on his end. He wasn't able to, to do it. He had some uh, event or travel or some other thing. Um, and then we, we kept rescheduling. Yeah. Sure. And we <laughs> yeah. never got to reschedule. And I've just had this like yeah. amazing one hour, like short, but very good episode with James Poulos. Yeah. It's just never been released. Um, <laughs> deep, deep from the new world content. And it's actually very, you know, it, I kind of regret not releasing it. Maybe I'll release it before this episode. Yeah, you should. Right? I want to hear it. It is yeah. this deep. Yeah. It, it is this deep dive into basically you would not expect it. if I released it. If I released it the week before, you would think it would it was released or it was recorded like a month ago. That's funny. Yeah. Okay. Now, now yeah, I really very, want to hear it. Now you have insightful. to release it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but but you mentioned Gnosticism. Yeah. Right. So, so uh, have you read uh, James's book, um, Human Forever? I have not yet. I have it, but I have not yet read it. Oh shame. I'm going okay. to. I'm okay. going yeah, to. Yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, so he has. I'm, I'm sure you've talked to him. You've talked to him about Gnosticism, right? And about like the spiritual nature of the underlying conflict. No, but I've seen some stuff that he's posted about it. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So, so, you know, James is always hard to summarize and he's going to maybe, you know, I'm, I'm going to, he's going to rightfully, you know, critique me for maybe misstating some of what he says, <laughs> but the, that the underlying conflict that basically this is something very similar to what we've already been talking about but that there are these underlying, you know, he views as fundamentally spiritual conflicts, religious conflicts yeah. that right. liberalism has tried to pave over, 
that yeah. they've tried to pave this over using various means. It could be technology. It could be basically censorship. It could be control. But that there are these like fundamental values distinctions, these fundamental religious conflicts between different people yeah. in in America, different peoples in America, and that. And that essentially what we're seeing with new technology is that that's going to be, that that's going to, to come back, right? That, that yeah. you're going to see this wide scale, um, really kind of civilizational or spiritual conflict. Yeah. Uh, do, do you think that that's the case? I do. And I would even say that one thing that I um, could would have brought up earlier had I known you were going to bring this up is I think that hard religion is making a comeback. But anyway, continue. Mm, okay. Give me the case for that. That's great. Um. I more and more people I don't know and people I know and and even just outside of my social circle, uh, when I see people uh, either returning back to religion or uh, read or discovering it for the first time, either which way, they tend to opt for the um, hard religion, meaning like we're talking about strictly high liturgy, high church forms of, let's say, Christianity, or they do the very strict um, other forms of, let's say, uh, Islam or some other faith. They go hard into it, not just in um, Americanized self-help Christianity, very loose, very liquid, very uh, vague, and very uh, impotent, but they're opting for the hard version of it. So I have plenty of friends who become hardcore Catholics, Latin Mass attending Catholics, when before they were atheists. And like Latin Mass form of the mass is like the like it's hard you don't even understand latin most of them so <laughs> right right and yeah yeah i i see the same thing uh, i do think yeah i i definitely see actually i, I talked with james about this as well yeah uh, i i do think this is uh i don't know because that's a bit scary Right, religious wars are scary. <laughs> you, you look in history; you know a lot of a lot of blood has been shed. And on on one hand, it, it is this great trade off, right? On, on one hand, I do I, I do have my own uh, spiritual and religious beliefs. I do have my own faith. I do right. have these things that I believe are true. On the other hand, you know I, I should be honest with myself. Am I ready to kill sure. and die for them? No, I'm not. I'm not. Sure. You know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, how do I say this? Um, <clears throat> I don't know to what extent we'll see weaponized conflict. Uh, I think if there is violence over religion, it will be directed from one end toward religious people. I think we'll see a lot of religious persecution happening, especially in the U.S. Um, in the next 10 mm -hmm. years. I think that's going to ramp up. And it's not just... Like, we've got a prelude of it when we see someone getting canceled for whatever reason, right? Like, and, you know, you lose access to your bank account or to your job or to whatever it is, and you get hounded and shamed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's a prelude for what's coming. I think we'll see very intense, uh, very high degree of religious persecution in the U.S. especially. Like, it's already, Europe is long gone. Uh, it's, um, it's near impossible to be a true believing uh, either Christian or even Muslim in Europe. It's been so flattened and it continues to be flattened uh, that it's uh, the persecution has already happened in, in a sense and it's hard for the European Union to persecute Christians or other people of faith even more, even though it's possible, but it's harder for them because they've already reached very far. And it's going to be a shock to Americans, I think, and especially American Christians where they'll see religious persecution at a degree that doesn't involve killing them and in the sense of them becoming martyrs, 
uh, it'll happen in other ways. Like they'll they'll get canceled and bank accounts shut down and locked out of their electric car, et cetera, et cetera, for just expressing religious beliefs in a public forum, right? So that's coming and it's going to be a very tough uh, situation for a lot of Christians and probably even others of other faiths as well in, in America. And fundamentally, though, it's uh, and I know I did with a broad paintbrush, but it's a rhetorical trick in a sense. <laughs> but the reality is, I think fundamentally, we're t we are talking about Gnosticism in the way that um, it Gnosticism fundamentally just hates reality. It hates it uh, absolutely. And it's, right. oh, um, maybe we should explain to the audience what Gnosticism is. It's like a it's kind of a collection of religious ideas and systems um, where uh, the okay, so, so let me tell the story. Let, yeah, let me do, do it. it. Yeah, okay. tell so, it. So, yeah. okay. So the entire Gnosticism is this kind of like great plot twist in Christianity. <laughs> I, I should say, you know, like, first of all, it's a heresy. Yeah, right. right? right, right. The, the, yeah. These kind of heretical um, people decided to basically like write their own Christian fan fiction. Right, right, right. And um, the, the Christian fan fiction is that it's this like huge plot twist, right? Yeah. I, I don't know if I'll get all of the terms right, but, um, <laughs> you know, originally there was... Uh, so, so the word Gnosticism comes from gnosis, knowledge. Right? Yeah. So, so what is the knowledge that you're that you're getting here? The, the knowledge is that you know the world is basically fake. Yeah. That actually, at the start, you know, there there was like actual God, which yeah. is not the God that most people worship, which is not the Christian God. And then, uh, and this this God creates another powerful being called the Demiurge, right? And the Demiurge is the kind of fake God, and the Demiurge is the God that everyone worships, right? That everyone calls God. And the Demiurge basically like created this world and imprisoned everyone else in this world. Um, and it, and essentially what like the, the, the snake in the Garden of Eden did was tell people like, hey, hey, guys, um, you're in this fake world. And the guy who set it up, the Demiurge, he's this kind of like fake god. And uh, yeah, that's the plot twist. And, you know, the way that you actually have to get to the real god you have the power you of essentially an angel if not a if not a god inside of you and the way you unlock that power is basically by going against all things the demiurge created right and the way you go against all things the demiurge created is that you rebel against the world itself yeah you basically take all things that you see as good about existing religion or as about the world around you and uh, you now have your enemy. That's your that's your plot twist. Yeah, yeah. The material world is evil, and the spiritual world is good. Is really what it comes down to. And and so anything from denial of reality all the way to actively hating reality is an expression of that. And so, like I say, Marxism is Gnostic, and many of the other extreme ideologies, like Nazism and so on, is, is Gnostic because it does it. What it does is that it it gives you the idea that um, the spiritual world in in as an ideology is the real good world and what you're seeing in front of you, your hands, your feet, your neighbor, your wife, your kids, your, whatever it is, the trees in front of you is all evil and you have to go beyond it. And the only way you go beyond it is through some secret kind of knowledge. Right. And so right. for ideology is that if you understand the Marxist way of um, Marxist interpretation of, of history in the world, then you have secret knowledge that now gives you the true reality and you see things how they really are and so apply that to any ideology and 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 off you go and so this idea that only gnosis a particular kind of knowledge can set you free in that sense and then the goal is to enforce that 
to be now the real material world. And so this is where all oh. go ahead. No, no, no. I, I just I'm just I just wasn't sure about that. Go ahead. So the goal now is for, uh, you know, Marxism to become or socialism and communism to become reality. And so they'll go to any length to make that real, including killing off like almost all of Russia. Right. And so, and so you know, it's this is where um, all the killing and mass murder and genocide is justified because you're trying to achieve a higher spiritual state in, in real life. Yeah, the, the, the strange it, it's weird because it's a it's a kind of. It, it's a very weird duality yeah, of right. basically rejecting re- rejecting material reality, but also at the end, like basically basing your victory condition off of it, right? Yeah. Basing your belief off of it. It's this weird combination, right? I don't really know how to explain it. Yeah, <laughs> but it's in that sense, it's a death cult. Like it's it's just it's aiming to destroy and to kill off, and and it's hatred toward reality, it's hatred toward yourself, the body you were born in, and so on. And so, run the line on that, and then you end up always with some form of genocide in different ways and different kinds and different um, uh, ways it has taken shape in history. But I see it, I, and this is another broad paintbrush, and so I'm doing so only for rhetorical <laughs> reasons, and I see a direct line and direct connection between AI doomerism and uh, all the other things we discussed. It's all fundamentally agnostic in my mind, um, and it's a death cult. They hate reality, and they don't see, they don't, for some reason, here's another thing that we are lacking, imagination. Like, AI doomers have no imagination. They they imagine all the negative things, but that's fear and that's not imagination. True imagination is generative. True imagination is positive. And so people fundamentally, and this is across the board, no matter where you fall on any spectrum of any kind, we just we have a hard time with imagination. We have a hard time imagining what else is possible and what else you can do. And this is why this is to tie back to the factory discussion. Like when you've um, when you brought up and lived in a world where school business and life is essentially a, a replica of a factory of different ways, where there are all the way from SOPs to specific ways you do things, and the scientific method is essentially liturgical and, and priestly as well. And so there's all these ideas that you have to act in a certain way in order for you to achieve some kind of um, solution, breakthrough of, of whatever kind it's hard to shift and then tap into your imagination because you've always taken imagination to be from the outside and being told what to do in different ways or following instructions in different degrees. And it's not that all instruction is bad. I'm not saying that, but what it does that you out, you've been, we have all been outsourcing our imagination to SOPs and other people and other ways of doing things and, and other software so that now when we're faced with the fact that you can have ChatGPT and other machine learning and AI tools really do almost anything and it's still early, but the, the number one problem people have is imagining what to ask or imagining what to say and what to prompt a large language model with. Like you, when faced with a prompt window, and I can say to executives, you can ask your company anything you want they, they'll stare blankly for five, 10 minutes at the prompt window and go, what do I ask? They can't even imagine what to ask their company. They, like, they can't even imagine what, to, what they want to know because it's, it's, it's a fundamental shift in how you use tech and even understand reality, which is like, it's really anything is possible. So you like, what do you want to know? What do you want to do? Right, right. There's this kind of mindset shift, right? Maybe, yeah. maybe I, I noticed this uh, for a long time because I've never, you know, I, I've always been kind of the opposite. But 
it seems like there there's some kind of shift where quantity turns into quality and kind of normal risk aversion honestly stuff that i kind of understand and relate to of being worried about things turns into a kind of par- paralysis right yeah, there are also studies right. on this yeah. you know like choice paralysis yeah um right but yeah it, it to me is like a very fundamentally a very strange feeling or a very strange situation for someone to be in front of chat gpt and not really you know in my view you know how i'm interpreting it is that they're too scared of you know they're too scared of making a mistake to know what to ask him like sure i don't know uh you know I'll, I'll ask it about like some some random like science thing i read today you know i'll, yeah. I'll see if it gets that right I'll ask it, you know, I'll ask it to write a poem, you know, right? like to, to me, like that, that is a lot more intuitive than the kind of choice paralysis. But yeah, I, I'm not sure. It, it's kind of hard, especially in the moment. It's kind of hard to see history as you're living through it. Right. Right. It's kind sure. of hard to see yeah. in the moment how much of this is kind of the, the, how much of this is kind of like a human universal and how much of it is the kind of technology around us. But yeah. we're about to see that change. Right. So, yeah. so maybe we'll, we'll get an answer. Um, and yeah. an interesting an interesting component of this is kind of education, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we we talked about instinct and wisdom at the end of it, discernment. Mm-hmm. What do you think the role of the humanities, both like the traditional humanities education, uh, trying trying to separate that from from what it's become? What what do you think the role of a traditional humanities education is in uh, understanding the world uh, that we're going to be living in? Well, I think finally. English majors will have a use of their degree. I think that's the first thing that'll happen. <laughs> like all of a sudden. Trump's engineering degree. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. That, that's great. That's well, great. it's, um, I, I don't know what uh, form it'll take. Uh, like I didn't finish college. Like I don't, you know, I didn't finish that at all. And I mostly saw, uh, I mostly done the self-educating thing, which is either I find a syllabus of a course I'd like to take and then I find what books they tell you to get, and then I get the books and read the books and then take online courses of different kinds, uh, you know, all the way from MIT to all the other universities that I've released uh, a lot of the courses online. So I've always sought that out myself just because of curiosity and, and interest. And I think um, seeking out courses on how to write Shakespearean sonnets will come in very handy for prompt engineering and writing. Uh, any kind of poetic expression and form because it is fundamentally exclamative where you are, you can, it's good to be able to formulate a thought that is very direct and very specific. And that's good to use in a large language model. But if you try to create something new, then you're going to have to spend time with half baked thoughts that you refine in an interaction with ChatGPT. Like I'll spend uh, hour, couple of hours, with a vague idea of an outcome that I want to see. And then I'll just go back and forth in a conversation with ChatGPT to get eventually get to the outcome that I want. And the only way to practice that, um, the habit of refining and writing and reformulating thoughts and formulating thoughts is to, and not the only one, but a good way is to read poetry and to study poetry and to write it yourself. Because poetry, good poetry is indirectly direct. Like it'll, it, the language is indirect, mm. but it'll uh, hit you hard in a very direct way as to what, it, what you then imagine or you then feel or think and experience as you're reading the piece of poetry. So it, it's a right. very good way of, of seeing in real life 
indirectness that is hyper direct in what it aims to do inside of you. Yeah. That, that... Sorry, it just takes a moment to takes a moment to think that through. Sure. But but I think I, I get what you mean. I get what you mean. There there is a kind of hmm, yeah. Same thing goes for like um, theater. I would say that uh, the best kind of of practice you can have in your life right now is to do, and it's going to sound funny, but interpretive dance. Interesting. Go, go say more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it, it, it's kind of said tongue in cheek, but I'm actually very serious. Uh, anytime you need, anytime you engage your body, uh, the better off you are. The tendency for us, and especially tech types, is that we spend most of our time in front of a laptop and we don't engage our bodies in the same way that other jobs might do or just other people might do. And so I think we need to, uh, and I do this uh, at this point just because I want to shock my system. If I spend too much time in front of uh, a computer and just at my desk, I try to do something shocking to my system like interpretive dance, which is really what it sounds like. You either get a prompt, which is a funny way of thinking about it, but you get a prompt of some kind, either someone telling you something or gives you an emotion or gives you an idea and you are supposed to interpret that with your body and express that idea or thought with body language without like speaking. And I think once you do that and, and shock your system with this idea that I can communicate with my hands, my feet, my legs, my face, my body, um, and how I move it and the, how quickly, like what my attack is and what my movement is and how big or small I make my body in different ways, you're, you're discovering embodied cognition that way. And I think moving forward, especially in the age of AI, embodied cognition will go a long way. And once you've done that to your system, you should definitely explore acting classes and play out scenes and uh, take classes where you're not, it's not just improv. I think improv has its time and place. But until you're you're familiar with just basic acting, where you're acting at a scene with a partner or a few partners, uh, don't go into improv yet. Like get uh, get familiar with acting out specific directions. And I think embodied cognition will. This is part of the reason why I think hard religion is coming back because liturgy and like the Latin mass is pure mm. embodied cognition. Like it's an expression of embodied cognition. And I think the more you practice those things, the more you practice interpretive dance, theater, acting, uh, even playing instruments, like it's, it's an embodied cognition that I think will help you as we go further into, um, as AI keeps evolving. Yeah, I do think, hmm. Right, so, so one more story. I think like, yeah, one one more story this was, you know, when I was much more of a rationalist when I was actually, this was when I was in high school, you know, yeah. um, something brilliant about acting, especially about kind of like forcing yourself to spend a lot of time on it, mm. is that you can kind of keep, at, you can keep uh, something with like getting a fixed script, especially, yeah. right? A fixed scene it is that you keep adding epicycles. You, you keep looking for more things to understand, looking for more things to improve in a way that's like literally impossible with normal social scenarios, right? right? You yeah. know, you talk to a friend, you know, maybe this podcast is a little different, actually. It's going to be recorded, but um, I mean, I hope we're recording, but uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, yes, I just checked. We are, um, <laughs> but 
Right. So, so if you're in just a normal conversation with friends, you know, maybe you're paying attention to a few things, but you know, it's over when it's over, it's over. Right. You're never gonna, you're never gonna look at it again. Yep. Uh, you might think of it again. You might, you know, you might have, you might have a memory of it, but that you're, you're never going, you know, you're never going to get a chance to, to try something else to, to change what you said. Um, but, but in a script, you know, maybe you don't change what you say. But there are definitely things to look for. There are definitely things. And there are people who are evaluating. There's a benchmark to say, you know, like, you can you can look at past recordings of whatever scene that's being performed and say, oh, right. this person captured something there that I, I just didn't, that I completely missed. Yeah. There, there, there are these subtleties that you can kind of keep zooming in on. Uh, and this was something that really, that really caught my fascination in, in high school that I really enjoyed. And that, you know, I think really took me took me to some interesting places <laughs> that, that yeah. I am now. So, so I know, uh, I know I am running a bit uh, close to the end time. I do think that you'll have a fairly long answer for this. You know, so I keep I going. I like it. dive into the last question of the show. So everyone gets this. It's the last question of the show <laughs> um, for everyone. And the question is two parts. Number one, what is something in the world that is too much order and needs more chaos? And number two, what is something in the world that has too much chaos and needs more order? And preferably something that we haven't talked about yet. Um, order that needs more chaos is definitely politics. And that needs even more chaos in our politics. Okay. <laughs> and forms of governance. That that's great. That's great. Yeah. Do, do you know like I don't know that this maybe is the same it's same kind of circle or a similar circle? But do you know the network state folks? Yeah, 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 yeah. I I'm not as familiar with them as as others, but I've seen. Um, didn't Balaji write a book on this? The network state. Or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, he's the epicenter of the kind of network state people. But yeah, yeah. Uh, so, sorry, go on. So so chaos in different forms of politics. Yeah, definitely. And forms of governance. I think there needs to be a shakeup. Uh, now, order that, uh, or chaos that needs more order. Um, gosh, that's a good question. Probably healthcare. Mm, chaos that needs more order. Yeah, it, it, it's weird. There's a kind of, you know, it's a disorder, right? It's a malignant order, but there, there's a kind of order there. But yeah, uh, yeah definitely could be improved. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. Okay, that, that was shorter. That, that was shorter than I expected. Uh, <laughs> I can go any, on. Any, but... <laughs> any last words? Any last words? Um, yeah, we have a few minutes words. left. What can I say? Um, yeah, <clears throat> I should say definitely for the audience. Definitely follow Sam. Uh, he writes at bionicmarketing.io. Um, all of the links will be in the chat. Um, you'll also be able to find the American Mind piece. All of that will be in the description. Yeah, I think last last word is. Uh, what I said before, which I think uh, beauty is coming for her revenge, and the plot twist of it all is that she's wielding AI, and AI is forcing us to have the conversation and to reconsider what beauty is. And beauty is entirely objective; it is not subjective. Uh, beauty is not in the eye of the beholder; it is an objective reality. And so there's good taste and there's bad taste and there's good art and there's bad art and there's there's beauty and then there's obviously ugliness. But I think beauty is the only mental uh, starting point that is, is more than just a mental framework or a heuristic. It's a 
it's a way of encountering reality that is the only thing that'll bring us forward. I think we're we're kind of uh, stomping in place much of the at least the Western world. I can't really speak to the the East uh, very well because I don't I'm not as familiar with with. Trust me, at. it's stagnating over there too. Well, okay, yeah. So so yeah. at least you know as as I see, we've been stagnated for a long, long, long time, and we don't even know. We're so enmeshed and uh, saturated in the stagnation that we don't even know how trapped we are. Like we think this is great. We think what we're, how we're living, how we're doing life, and how we're doing tech and everything else. Like I think people are 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 becoming more aware that it's not as great as we as we've been either told or tricked ourselves into believing that it is. But things aren't great. It's very stagnant. It's very dead. We're at a dead end that we've been stomping in the same dead end for a very long time, and we can't seem to figure out how to turn the car around and drive away. Um, and I think only beauty can help us drive away and find a different path. Yeah, I'm optimistic on these things, man. I, I do think we're going to get a revival of the political, a revival yeah. of the spiritual. Yeah. And that'll be, you know, to, to some people, they'll be very worried about that. They'll be very concerned. They'll like start a petition or something. But I think it'll be <laughs> awesome. I think it'll be awesome. I agree. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for though. having me. Really appreciate it. That was my conversation with Sam Woods. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you'd like to help the show, just like I said up top, the best way you can do so is to let a friend know, either in person or online. You can also help us out by subscribing to my Substack at either the free or paid level, by giving the podcast a like or a five-star review on any podcast app, and by leaving comments and suggestions for future shows, including suggestions for guests to have on. And as always, if you like the show, we'll have another great episode out next Monday. See you then.